Father, thank you for the truth of your word, uh, which I have the privilege of speaking today. May I be, may my brothers and sisters today be encouraged and edified. Would you allow your powerful, unchanging words to penetrate our hearts and minds today, and that we would be tangibly different No words of man can do that. Only your words can do that. So, Lord, use my study and preparation and my enthusiasm for this passage, for your truth, and all that we bring together today. Use all of it to allow our hearts to receive your word joyfully. And we give you thanks for the privilege of being here with each other. Amen. Well, many of you guys have had the opportunities to build or remodel a house. And if you're little, think fort, okay? And so even if this is one in your living room with chairs and clothespins and tent, leftover tent pieces, if you've not had the opportunity to build a house, you've probably dreamed about it. Let me ask you a question. If you're building a house or a fort, what are the essential elements, the non-negotiables that you have to have in this construction of a house, a home? What is the one thing that you would need to include that would allow your family to function within it? Many of us have been in this uh, church community long enough that we've been with each other through these construction projects, either remodels or new builds, and it kind of become we know when it's happening because it becomes the topic of conversation like every time we talk with you, right? <laughs> or me. It often consumes our thinking. We wake up thinking about it, and we go to bed thinking about it. I used to keep a piece of paper by the side of my bed and re-sketch and draw. And we, we, We give thought to every nook and cranny in attempts to give priority to the practical elements. We might even, like I did, measure out with and then put blue tape down and to see if this is going to fit or that's going to fit. What are the necessary elements? Exactly how big... Does this thing need to be to get in there what we have to have in there? Let me ask us a question. Have you ever thought about what essential elements your spiritual house needs to function? What are those non-negotiables, those have-to-haves for the construction of your spiritual home? If you leave them out, it's gonna, if, or if you put that island in the middle, it's gonna be really awkward to work around. What essential, what essential elements, what non-negotiables do you need in your spiritual home? And I want us to think, typically we hear that, our spiritual home, and we begin thinking about our own lives. We receive the word different than the original Hebrews. If I would have said, what do you need in your spiritual home? They would have immediately begun thinking about their community. That's the way I want us to think today. It's what Paul is going to present to us in the book of Philippians. What is it that you need in your spiritual home? What are the essential elements, church family, that we have to have in our home in order to function as a community, as a team. If you cut out all the non-essentials, what must we have in order to have one mind? To stand firm in the same spirit. What do we have to have? To strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. What do we have 
to have. How can we, as Paul is going to ask the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing? How do we do that? So that we will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine like the lights of the world holding fast to the word of life. That's a huge order, yeah? What do we need, team? Not just to play church, but to live those realities. We have to do something, right? We need some things if we're really going to do that. True? Somebody say true. Thank you. I love your spontaneity. Describing these essential qualities that we need for our spiritual home is the purpose of Philippians chapter 2. So Paul starts out, Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, meaning co-spirited or co-purposed, and one of mind. Look at some of those words. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being co-purposed and one of mind. You begin to get an idea that the Lord is quite serious about this one-minded thing. Remember last week, he mentions it towards the end of chapter 1. And now here in the first part of chapter 2, in the very first verse, I want you to be one-minded, I want you to be single-minded, and in between there, I want you to have the same love, and I want you to have affections and sympathy for one another. Now, three questions as I was wrestling through teaching this text and applying it to myself Three questions that we need to ask of the text if we're going to get out of it what I think Paul intends for us to get. The first one is, what does it mean to actually have the same mind, to be one-minded? What does that mean? Secondly, why is this oneness of mind so important? If If we're supposed to do it, what does it mean to have it And why is it so important? And then lastly, how do we get it? Before we get into the bulk of the epistle, I first need to talk about what this same mind or one-mindedness is not. Okay? So three things. There's more. Three key things that one-mindedness is not. And the first thing is, one-mindedness does not sacrifice the supremacy of of Christ Jesus as Lord and King. In other words, Jesus is fully God in the flesh. Nick, thank you for leading us in the reading. It's perfect for today. Everything we read today about who Christ is, is true. He's fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a death he didn't deserve, but died our death. He conquered death in his resurrection he provided atonement for our sin and he is the only mediator between god and man and any deviation from christ as lord and god and savior for the sake of one mind is not true one-mindedness one-mindedness does not sacrifice the supremacy of jesus the second thing one-mindedness isn't, is it does not sacrifice truth or ignore sin for the sake of unity. One-mindedness does not sacrifice truth, nor does it ignore sin for the sake of one mind. I don't have to convince anybody that our culture is primarily our culture, not this one, the one we live in, is built primarily 
on lies. We face them every day. Many of these lies are making headway into some of our churches that we've attended in the past that have seemed very strong. So you have this whole idea of truth being relative and what works for me maybe not work for you and that's okay because we get to define our own or this whole acceptance of sexual sin and sexual deviancy. Not just that out there, but that does trickle its way in here. And this whole thing about critical race theory and who is actually your theory, these things have sunk in to the church. Well, having unity of mind does not mean adopting or staying quiet about lies. You with me? It's true. Having unity of mind does not mean adopting or even staying quiet against lies for the sake of unity. In Ephesians 4, which is another book on unity, Paul says, the Bible says, Do not be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried out carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul says, don't act like spiritual babies and be all over the place with different variations of truth and just appeasing everybody for the sake of unity. He says, that's immature. Don't act like babies. Don't do that. One-mindedness is not giving up the ground of truth that isn't ours to give up. Yeah? Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, so we kind about it, we're humble about it because it is not our truth, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ in whom the whole body is joined and held together. Church, that gives us a bit of a hint. We're going to get into this about what our spiritual home takes. Joined and held together into Christ. And lastly, one-mindedness is not uniformity of thought on issues of preference or opinion. So in other words, we don't all think the same, nor should we. But on these essential core issues, like the ones we read together up front, and the reality of who Christ is and what His Word says, we are in full, absolute agreement. But in areas of preference, we should and ought to have various ideas and opinions and preferences And as an elbow or an eye or a foot or a toe or whatever part you fulfill in the body, you bring your various perspectives and it helps us to live together with the goal of, right, following Christ, our head, our leader, our brain. You with me? So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Each of our body parts has varying roles and responsibilities. So one-mindedness does not mean uniformity in every area of thinking and preference. Or we would simply not function well as a church. If we were all a hand, we would be a hand laying on the ground. We need all of us. And we think differently and we welcome that because it helps us to see life differently and to grow and change. So one-mindedness is not uniformity on all areas of thinking. So what's our first thought? Let's get into question number one. What does it actually mean to have the same mind or be in one mind? And again, chapter 2 starts off, So if there's any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation with the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, 
Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Now, if we're searching for the essential elements of our church family house, what, what the Lord is telling us through Paul here in Philippians is that we have all the basic elements or resources that we need to build our house in Christ. You see that? He's saying you have these four things. You have all these raw elements. You have the guaranteed love of Christ. You have the participation of His Spirit in your life. There's this if clause in here, if there is any encouragement, if there's any comfort. So it seems to be written in the form of a question like, well, maybe you do or maybe you don't. But most commentaries will tell you the way that this is structured in the original language helps us to understand that where Paul is speaking of guaranteed certainties. And so you could actually reinterpret or restate it, the if with a sense. So it could be read this way. Since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from His love, since you have the Spirit participating in your life, since you have His affection and His sympathy. So in these first parts of verse 1, God's Word says we have four guaranteed resources because we're connected to Christ. One, we have encouragement in Him. We have comfort from His love. Number two, we have participation of His Spirit. And we have affection and sympathy. It's interesting that the King James um, states that we have bowels and mercies. I thought, I'm looking that up. What does that mean? We have bowels and mercies. It's saying that there's, it's not just an affection. It's deeper than that. It actually, we would say it's gut wrenching. We have a gut wrenching response to the gospel that causes me to have deep affections for you. Jason expressed this when he stood up. I'm resonating with him. Many of you were at our house till midnight. I met with some of you at 8.30 this morning. I have affections for you. I like love doing that. Me and Ian were talking earlier this week. We spent some time in the woods together. And we were both just talking about this deep desire to see Christ formed in you. It's gut-wrenching. That's what Paul is saying. That's what God's word is saying. That something about being connected with Christ causes me to want to love you seriously. And these four guaranteed resources that come from Christ aim our direction at him. And that is what it means to be of one mind. That everything we realize flows from Him and then we're back at Him, looking towards Him. We exalt Christ as Lord and Savior, Savior from God's wrath against sin. And we make much of the gospel, the good news of God. Remember, can you do it with me? What, what the gospel is? Can you do it? Deserving wrath justified by grace. Vine and branch. Come on, team. Deserving wrath justified by grace. Counted righteous. Rejoicing in God. Dead to sin. Activated to righteousness. Church, that's the gospel. And that sets us in a place of being. That's the best news I ever heard. I'm going to organize my life around that together with you. That's one mind. It's true. 
So to be of one mind means that this gospel that we just defined is our greatest treasure together and together we organize our lives around that truth. Hello, I was talking to a, young, a guy out in my yard. He bush hogs my um, front field. The great neighbor is actually Nancy's son. And I was talking uh, with Mick and I was just saying, man, our goal is not to play church. Like, I'm a, I'm a no-nonsense enough of a guy. If we're doing that, I'm doing something else, right? This baby has to have handles. We've got to live this. So, to be of one mind means the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we deserved wrath, we got His righteousness, we're rejoicing, we're dead to sin, we're alive to righteousness, that's the best news I've ever heard. That is our greatest treasure together. And together we organize. We say, that's our highest priority. We're going to do that together. That's one mind. And Paul says, have this mind, team. So last week we read that he says, only, in other words, make this one thing true of you. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember? Make this your thing. Only. If you do one thing in life, make this your treasure. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One mind. Therefore, we're called to respond to those four amazing resources with strong and unifying gut-wrenching responses so paul says here's your response to those same truths have the same mind of christ have the same love as christ be full purposed together on honoring god the father like christ have affections and sympathies, heart-wrenching like Christ. That's your response. That's how you respond to the good news. One-mindedness, church, is not achieved by being agreeable to what everybody says. That's not one-minded. Just simply, well, you said it, so I'll agree so we can be like-minded. That's not like-mindedness. It is also not getting rid of difficult or offensive doctrines. Unity, like-minded is, mindedness is brought about by a certain person. Jesus Christ. And a spiritual family that loses this room in their house has no house. We say that another way. A spiritual family that loses its central focus on Christ is not of one mind. So the Bible says in Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves. Let this run deep. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, we sang, these are ancient words, these are ever true, they don't fail. We sang that at the beginning, yeah? We believe that? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. This mind of Christ is yours. That's true. Why is this oneness so important? Our second question. This idea of one-mindedness, if you really want an interesting study, 
Look that up on blueletterbible.org. Look up one-mindedness and it'll take you all to these parallel passages. Really encouraging. But this idea of one-mindedness is not isolated to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Peter says the same thing in his first epistle, chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. And again in Ephesians, the Bible says that leadership's roles are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith. So why is this oneness of mind so important? Why do we find it in so many places in our Bibles? Why did, call, why did God call a community of imperfect people to try to pull this unity and one-mindedness off from the very first chapters in Genesis? Why is this so important? Paul's already been kind of prepping us to answer this question when he prays for the Philippians, and we receive that as a prayer by application to us in chapter 1, verse 11. He's praying that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise to God. We're hinting, what is this oneness about? Why is it so important? Well, I'm praying, Paul says, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from knowledge and discernment. And knowledge and discernment has an end. It's to cause you to actually live like God. And so that you would point people's attention to his attributes, his glory. That's what it means to glorify the Lord, to put his attributes on display and people go, that's amazing. Think about this. In John 17, the one we read here at the beginning, Jesus, it's often called his high priestly prayer. And in his, this prayer for all believers, he makes this aim at the glory of God by our oneness crystal clear starting in verse 20 he says i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that for the purpose of i want them unified lord just like we are for the purpose of, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why is oneness so important? Because it is the way that people come to Christ, church. It's not just our words and talking people into heaven. The gospel changes our lips and our lives. We are to speak the message and be the message. The glory that you have given me. Oh Lord, let this run into our hearts. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. So that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. Wait a minute. He's asking that we here, team, would love one another. And then the world will know God sent Christ for me. Are you, are you making that connection? How does that work? We love each other. And the world goes. God sent Christ to rescue me. Oneness. Or perfectly one. Does not just mean agreeable. The original language it means intertwining lives. It doesn't mean that we have good meals. Oh we do. 
twice a month and we get, we hang out fellowship. It's not what it means. It means that our lives are intertwined. That's what makes the world go. God sent somebody for me. Our lives together in here, moving outward, displays the gospel plan of God's love for the world out there. Our love for each other at our expense displays his love for us at his expense. It's true. So Romans says this, 15.6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, Christ at the center, right, back here, Christ at the center, that together with one voice you may glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's our job. We get to do that. And it's doable. Say it's doable. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for The glory of God. One mind. One mind focused on Jesus, serving others for the glory of God. But here, now Paul's going to present the opposite of that. Be careful. Here comes the anti-gospel. An independent mind. Doing what works for me. Seeking my own glory. Hear me. My family. The western idea of independence and autonomy is the anti-gospel. Us Americans need to let that sink in. These values, this is not my opinion. This is a word of the Lord. These values of autonomy and individualism are not just preferences. They're the anti-gospel. So in verses 3 through 4, Paul presents this enemy of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The NIV and King James translate that vain conceit. Meaning, empty glorying. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or or glorying in vain things that aren't actually glory. It's not going to happen. Don't count yourselves more significant than others. Don't look to your own interests. It's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying and calling us to here. Are you with me? One mind. One spirit. You want to work opposite that act? Act like you got to be a self-made man. Act like you don't need help. Don't lean into the body for help to grow and change. Think your own thoughts. Follow your own heart. Fulfill your own dreams. Where are you getting that garbage? Just about every movie and TV show. Yeah? Hello? It's the anti-gospel. Hey, 
Church, this isn't just a bad idea. This is a worldview that is being pressed on you, and we buy it at times, don't we? It's the anti-gospel. So Proverbs 18.1, old wisdom says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Whoever isolates himself does it because he wants what he wants what he wants. It's not the gospel. Rather, God's word says, we are to do something totally countercultural, totally unhuman. We empty ourselves. The Greek word is kenosis for the sake of others. And our model is Christ Jesus. This takes us to our last question our last point that Paul is going to make. How do we get this oneness of mind? Well, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If I didn't put your, put this in your notes, write this down. Humility is the essential room that we must have in our spiritual home. If you don't have this room, your family won't function. Not just here, but also at home. If you don't have humility, you have no spiritual home. Now, I said this when we taught the beginning part of Philippians. Many of Paul's letters develop a single idea and then carry it throughout his whole letter. Philippians is a little bit different. And in it, Paul organizes his letter around a central point. And the rest of the letter points back to that central point. And that central point is a poem. And it pulls from the book of Isaiah and I'm pretty sure uh, Genesis. Don't, But it pulls from Isaiah for sure. And that central poem is right here in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. We've often heard it called the kenosis passage. And it means, again, to empty oneself. And this is where Paul anchors our one mind. If he says, you guys need to have one mind, he walks over and he takes the anchor and he says, and here's how you don't leave one mind. And he runs it down into this passage. So starting in verse 6, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This is the word of the Lord. The God of the universe entered our time and space. Grace. Not only that. He entered not in riches, wielding a scepter, but in poverty, applying a towel and a basin. Jesus was God, yet he didn't lord it over men and women. Rather, he served everyone. Grace, humility. And more than that, his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his humility took him all the way to a brutal death, a death he did not deserve, by Roman cross, atoning for our debt as his expense, and he trusted God the entire way. He did not connive to bring about his own glory or to erect himself as in temple of worship, which Satan tempted him to do. Rather, he entrusted himself to God's plan, and he waited for God's exaltation. Church, family, we are called to have that mind. 
Humility is the secret sauce of oneness. You think Chick-fil-A's dipping sauce is good? Humility is the secret sauce of oneness. Humility is the room that we must design into our spiritual homes. It's got to be central. Humility is essential for our one-mindedness. Humility is a have-to-have for unity. And again, church, Paul is talking about here, but this applies to your homes as well. This is a very good litmus test. If you're struggling with unity in your home, find pride. And get it out. Humility is imperative for team. You don't have a really good winning team without humility. No humility, no oneness. No humility, no unity. No humility, no team. And humility is most clearly seen and perfectly exemplified in Christ our King. Yeah? It's true. And so God's admonishment to us through Philippians is this. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, using our terminology for today, work humility into the structure of your spiritual home and you will please the Lord. That's a good translation or paraphrase. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In the context, the, the Lord is telling us, work Humility into the structure of your home, and I am pleased. Seven things the Lord hates. Pride, 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 pride. He loves humility. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. You want to be that person? Man, I do. Humility. Then Paul goes on to say, verse 14, 15, 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine lights, lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I haven't had a whole lot of time to make this connection, but you should really study this out a little bit. But unity and joy are Intricately connected together. And his parents, by the way, we get this. And Paul says this. I have no greater joy than this, than my children are walking. Was it? That's John. I have no greater joy than this, than my children walk with the Lord. You want to make your pastor's life really good? Not all of your pastors, your elders. Obey the Lord. And so Paul ends this section with his verses 17 and 18 and says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, in other words, even, even if it costs me deeply, if your faith is growing, Paul says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And then he says, 
And likewise, you also also should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, Paul is saying, I am taking joy at the growth of your faith, even though it's costing me. And you should take joy in your in in the growth of my faith, even though it's costing you. Why? Because the greatest joy in all of our life is to see the gospel, the good news of God moving forward. And in this, I rejoice. Yeah. And so here is maybe a summary lesson for us. Our ability to experience joy and unity is tied to humility. Our true ability to experience the joy that and the rejoicing that Paul talks about here and the unity points to this kenosis passage and to Christ and it's tied to humility. Have this mind in Christ, which is yours in him. And what is the essential element of the kenosis passage? He humbled himself. So as we think about application, as the chapter comes to a close, Paul provides two real life examples of this humility that is found in Jesus, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Maybe like me, when I was studying this passage, I'm thinking, yeah, have the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, be like Jesus. Okay, that's a tall order, yeah? Those are big shoes to fill. Maybe a little impossible or even intimidating and like, I'm not sure I can reach the pedals. Well, perhaps Paul knew That we would think that. And so he includes a couple of pictures of two frail men with skin on by way of example. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, who is explained in these few short verses as showing genuine concern and a servant of the gospel. And Epaphroditus, who is a walker of long distances, probably with a satchel, carrying a message and a gift And he went and met with Paul. And then he got really sick. This is not a superhero. He almost died. So he goes to help Paul. Have you ever done this? You go to help somebody. And I went to plow for a friend one time. And then I got my snow plow stuck in his yard. And I ended up sleeping on his couch. And his wife had to make me breakfast. I went to help. And then he was helping me. Epaphroditus goes to help Paul and now Paul's patching Epaphroditus back up and sending him out. This is no stalwart, you know, we don't have any great recorded messages by Epaphroditus, nor actually do we have any from Timothy. You know who they were? Average Joes with skin on seeking to love each other for the sake of the gospel. And like we've learned before, they were awkward and God is awesome. Yeah. And they make it into this hall of look at these guys as examples of humility. Church, when I, when I realized that that's what was happening in this passage, I got hope. Okay, Jesus, can't reach the pedals on that. But a Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think I might catch up with them boys. Church, we can do this. We've been called to do this. And Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. And here's two average Joes that are just, they have a heart for people. Timothy has a genuine interest in you. And Epaphroditus, he just walked a really long way. Some of you are walkers. You, you with me? Some of you are deliverers of messages. Some of you are just encouragers. And then you get sick when you get there. But that's okay. Church, we can do this together. So just a couple things for us to consider. One, easy to say, simple but hard, but also simple, hard, but really good. Keep yourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, keep your mind marinating on deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous, rejoicing in the Lord, dead to sin, activated to righteousness. Keep your mind in that. And you will stir up two things, humility and joy. The gospel 
that we didn't earn our way humbles us and it gives us joy. Keep yourselves in the gospel of Christ and you'll stir up both humility and joy. Cultivate humility into the fabric of your home and our church. And then I'm going to pull an application from last week. Keep yourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, play your game. Do your job. You've been called to genuinely love this body of believers. And you've been called to do it in very specific ways. Some of you public, some of you very private. Whatever your calling is, do it with joy and with your whole heart. Play your game. Joyfully do your job. Do what you're called to do without comparing yourself to anybody else with joy and with humility. I'm doing the job that God assigned to me and be humble about it. So, right? Be content in it. Keep yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's exalt him as king and rescuer and play your game. Lord, I love your word more every time I study it and teach it. Thank you for calling me to a place where I gravitate and, ha and have to some days when I don't feel like it. In your word, it is your gift to me and I'm really thankful. I thank you for this amazing group of brothers and sisters, this team that we get to do life with together. Help us to keep ourselves in the gospel. As Jude says, and then keep us in the gospel even when we can't keep ourselves, Lord. Thank you for that. And then help us to joyfully and humbly do our job. For your glory, for the love of each other, and so that the world will know that you sent them a rescuer. In Christ our King. Amen.